0: All right, so let's get started. I'm right. uh, We're going to continue today with our Kingdom of God series. We're continuing with Chapter 3. As you know, on the back, toward the bottom, is all the 15 titles of the chapters, and many of the chapters will be multiple weeks. Um, today is Chapter 3D, and I think we're going to go as far as Chapter 3G. I think we're going to have seven subsets of Chapter 3. And uh, just by way of review, our series theme is Matthew 6.10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, is, most, if you ask most people today, they would think it has something to do with the heaven or the next life. It has nothing to do, well, it, 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 it's a small natural outgrowth of the larger biblical thing called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, that you will go to heaven if you're a member of his kingdom On Earth, and uh, but the Kingdom of God is the major theme of all the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, and so um, the Kingdom of God is something God has been bringing since since He uh, created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo, out of nothing. God lives above and beyond time. He created time, he created the time-space continuum, he created the heavens and the earth for part of his eternal decree. In 3a, we looked at God's eternal decree. He always knew where he was going and what the end was from the beginning. He, uh, he, he wasn't surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. He's not actually all that surprised when you sin, or I sin. Uh, he does, he, uh, he God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So on chapter 1 we looked at that theme that the that the kingdom of God is the primary theme of all scripture and we we used the uh modern pretext pre uh proof text method in other words we showed scriptures from each of the major sections of scripture the mosaic law the historical books the wisdom books the uh prophets the the gospels the epistles showing that the kingdom of God is the major theme but um the truth to be told the proof text approach to things is just something that's grown up in modern times after what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. The major way of, of understanding Scripture is to think of the Scripture holistically, to know the whole Scripture. We, we serve one God who wrote one book. Uh, he's so amazing that he was able to do it over a 2,000-year period on three continents using 40 human beings as authors, but it was, uh, but he had written it from all eternity. And so um, when, when you get past just, just seeing that there's specific scriptures in each section of scripture that, that, that help us see that God's government, God's kingdom is God's, uh, is God's eternal decree, his ongoing purpose, and so forth, uh, you see, you actually you study the whole Bible, you begin to realize it's a thread, it's a theme that runs through every chapter, every thought. God has a kingdom. His kingdom is perfect in heaven. He is bringing that same sanctuary, that same tabernacle, that same garden, the city of God, all sorts of metaphors uh, for God's perfect presence and perfect will where there is no sin. He is bringing that to earth progressively. That was his intention from the beginning. And um, he foreknows all things and foreordains all things and so forth. Uh, Then we looked in chapter 2 at 12 statements that define the kingdom. I've I've, uh, condensed three of them here. The kingdom of God is the reign, government, rulership, or dominion of God. It is the realm in which his good and perfect will is willingly entered into, not only as in heaven, but on the earth now. Again, Jesus said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wouldn't have us pray for something different than we're to work for, and he wouldn't have us pray for something different than we're, we're to believe for. That is God's purpose. His uh, The Bible says that the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. Now, um it began to be an idea that arose in the church in the 1800s and really swept the church in the 1890s that most of the things about the kingdom of God would have to wait till after the second coming because God was neither powerful enough nor his spirit powerful enough nor man's sin was too deep, whatever reason that it wasn't going to happen except after a cataclysmic event where God came back and set up his kingdom geopolitically. But that's never been how his kingdom has, has worked or come. His kingdom starts by changing you from the inside out. His kingdom uh, starts by changing you from the top, from the bottom up. Uh, it, it's like a, it's like a mustard seed that starts as the smallest of the seeds. I guarantee you in the Roman Empire that the major news outlets were not covering this rabbi itinerant rabbi walking back and forth between the northern province of Galilee, uh, usually around the Jordan River, so he missed Samaria, but sometimes through Samaria, which was radical in itself, and uh, through in Judea and back, uh, doing miracles, teaching, and so forth, and having a band of about 120 followers. I'm sure that wasn't the biggest news in the Roman Empire uh, from, a, from natural man's minded point of view yet it was the most important thing that had ever happened on the earth. So things aren't always as they seem if you see them from God's perspective. So again, the kingdom is that place where his good and perfect will is willingly entered into now on the earth. Secondly, God owns and rules all the earth. Therefore, even his enemies do his will. However, only those who receive his reconciling, redeeming, and empowering grace, working through trust, Uh, by the way, I substitute the word trust everywhere the word belief or faith is, because biblical trust or biblical faith is in a person, and it's in a relationship with God, whereby you follow him enough to love him Obey him, be discipled by him, lay down your life and take up, uh, lay down your will and, and say thy will be done. We have turned faith in modern times since the Civil War into an abstract intellectual concept that's very Greekified and that would be, Plato would be happy with, but Christ is not happy with. And Plato would be happy, you know, we, if we believe 12 or 10 or 14 fundamental statements about the faith, then, we're, then we are believing in God. That is just believing the facts about God. That's important. It's foundational. If you, if you analyze Paul's epistles, for in, in Romans 1 through 11, he makes three separate arguments. Romans 1 through 4 is an argument. Romans 5 through 8 is an argument. Romans 9 through 11 is an argument. For the gospel, for th- what the the powers that be and what the earth is all about and and how it actually really works in your life and your heart and what sin is and grace and and redemption and all these things, but then in chapters twelve through sixteen, he tells you how to live it. and if you don't get to chapters twelve to sixteen in a biblical way of thinking, you're not you you never didn't get anywhere. in fact, you might you got deceived <laughs> is what you got. And so much of Christianity today is is this abstract intellectual belief. Ephesians one, two, and three give us the framework, the, the bone work, you might call it, the joints of, of the gospel, but chapters four, five, and six give us the muscle and the flesh. And if you don't if the word of God does not become incarnate, then it's a deception. The word must become flesh and live among us. That's what the church is supposed to be, the incarnate body of Christ. He he is the head, we are the body, and he is living his uh, eternal purposes through us. So, um, God rules over all the earth, therefore even his enemies do his will. However, only those who receive his reconciling, redeeming, and empowering grace, working through faith, uh, that is grace works through faith. Grace always works through faith. Uh, god God graciously chooses and God graciously empowers. Today the definition of grace is God's divine um enable or god uh, that's not the that definition is is God's unmerited favor, undeserved choice. Uh that's a 25 to 30 40% of the definition of grace. But the real definition of grace is God's Choosing you and working through faith in such a way that he empowers you to become like Christ, that he changes your heart that you become a new creation, old things pass away, the old sin where you stop saying stuff like, Well, I'm like this or I'm like this, you're in Jesus Christ you're you're like Christ, that's what your destiny is. Oh, I'm just lazy, stop you know just you know say. By the grace of God, my old nature was lazy, and God is is killing that and birthing a new nature that's diligent and zealous and disciplined and focused on the things of God. That's If anyone's in Christ, you're a new creature. Believe and reach for and be discipled into Christ-likeness. The process of sanctification is the process of becoming more set apart to the purposes of the Father by becoming like the Son. So anyone who uh, experiences this grace working through faith is free to participate in his kingdom purpose. The essence, uh, if you really talk to what's called postmoderns, people who are 31 years and down, the essence of what is worshiped and valued out there right now is I want to be free. And how freedom is defined is I want to do what the hell I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. No one can tell me whatever to do not to do. I do what I want to do. The problem is the Bible calls that the worst kind of slavery because before long, you'll either be conquered by apathy or you'll be conquered by anger management issues or you'll be conquered by some sort of immaturities, addictions, things that are destructive because that's what will grow out of you doing what you want to do when you want to do because that's your sin nature. And the reason I use the word H-E-L-L is because that is a principle of H-E-L-L. That is what you're becoming when you do what you want to do, when you want to do it, and how you want to do it. You become more and more like the demonic kingdom. And you think you're free because you do whatever internal impulse you want to do. You, you let go your anger and your rage however you want to, when you want to, on whoever you want to but you'll just just try to stop that and you'll find out how bound up you are. You're free, but you never feel like doing anything. That especially happens if you're like a marijuana smoker or whatever, you like everything's cool and everything's peaceful. Remember, the flesh and Satan have a counterfeit for everything God is. God has a peace that passes all understanding, but it's not passive. It's not sitting there going well nothing bothers me i am a rock i'm an island and a rock feels no pain <laughs> you know and uh, you know that that is that is being captured by something that dehumanizes you that may you know humans are passionate they feel hurt they they long for things they have personalities the goal in, in, as a Christian is to bring all that zeal and passion and everything under the lordship of Christ, led by the Spirit of God. Those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The, the fruits of the Spirit are, and so forth. Love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, and I'm sure you know them all. All right, so number four, God has eternally purposed to express his reign. This is important for our message today. His kingdom through a nation of people born of one regal head in the present age. Okay. In other words, God wants to have a people born of one regal head that are the people of His kingdom. That if you want to know what heaven's like, you go to their house. Now, this has become a, a major part of the cop out of American Christianity. as we are taught, oh, don't look at me, brother. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Uh, you know, don't don't follow man. Paul said. Be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Consider those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith, their faithfulness, their trust in God. You ought to be able to say, You want to know what Jesus is like? Come over for dinner. And as you see me love my wife and my wife respect her husband, and you see the uh, the joy and and fellowship around the, our table with our kids and so forth, you'll know how Jesus lives. If you want to know how Jesus lives, come hang out with the guys who mow the lawn together on Saturday afternoons, and you'll know who you know. You'll touch a piece of Jesus in the way they mow the lawns. So that's what God, God wants a people born of one possession of one uh, that are, that are going to, that he's the regal head. Okay. Now today we're going to get into, uh, uh, then we got into 3A was God's eternal decree that he's Isaiah 46, nine through 10. You could read if you need, um, it's probably one of the best verses on God's eternal decree. We looked at eight characteristics of covenant. And then the last two weeks, we spent two weeks, there was a C1 and a C2. On the idea of covenant theology, that there's a continuity between the covenants. Um, the modern idea that was birthed after the Civil War called dispensationalism breaks up the whole Bible so that. That no one, no dispensationalist would say this, but in essence, you have a God of the Old Testament who's a God of wrath and judgment, and then there's the God of grace and mercy of the New Testament, and and that you and He He works this way in the Old Testament, He He worked this way in the time of Noah, and there's all these different dispensations and God's schizophrenic and changes in all these different ways, um, but. You know the in the in the extreme forms of dispensationalism, you know the the Sermon on the Mount is for the millennium because no one could possibly live that now. And when historically the the church taught that that was the basic introductory teaching of what it meant to be a follower of Christ, it's called you know what it means to be a disciple. And uh, you know this idea uh came across and and uh uh it's been modified it it had its height there with the scofield bible in the 1920s and and all this kind of stuff and really since then um more and more evangelicals have backed off of it more further and further but without lo- losing the system uh because obviously the system's not that biblical and it and it doesn't and it produces bad fruit it doesn't really work and it's caused us to have the most secular anti-Christian culture in the history of, of Western culture has developed since, since the birth of these kind of reductionist, escapist views of, 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 it, we're not here to, to, to proclaim the king king and bring his kingdom and set people free from the kingdom of darkness. And, uh, s- salvation is, is just, uh, praying a sinner's prayer and, pun- and then you hold your ticket and, maybe go to church on Sundays while you're holding your ticket until you go to heaven, but it's not like getting equipped to change the world. So, um, you know, covenant theology is an important thing to see that there, you know, that as Galatians says, no one, uh, after ratifying a covenant adds stipulations or conditions to it. God, uh, all covenants of the Bible presuppose that man will fail and covenants are dependent on God's making a promise and then man has conditions, and, that, and when he breaks those conditions, uh, there will be sanctions, uh, or if he keeps them, there will be blessings, and God knows that man will fail, so he has already in each covenant provided the atonement. He never abrogates his covenant, he fulfills it, and it gets engrafted as he continues to reveal more of his eternal covenant that he had between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Hebrews 13:20) to come and redeem mankind. And God is progressively unveiling his full covenant through the covenants of the Bible, and they are actually one, made by one God. So um, we'll look, you, uh, if you don't, if that's all new to you, there's, uh, we have a podcast on our website, and uh, you can get a copy of the uh, outline by email. By the way, at the bottom of today's message, I put a little small thing that says it's got bod- podcast, and, and you can email me to request an outline if you want to listen to any of these podcasts, because I've come to know that uh, people are start outside our church are starting to listen to the podcast, and I'm thankful for that. So uh, today we're going to look at the idea, uh, again, we're continuing chapter 3D, we're going to look at the idea that there are two people groups in the earth, okay? And that's a major theme of the whole Bible, I was talking to a young man uh, yesterday about the two people groups, and we're sitting on our, my back deck, and he said, boy, it's like it is today. And I said, yeah, because it's like it's always been and always will be until the second coming of Christ, there will be two people groups in the earth. And the, the people of darkness will actually wax more evil, and the people of light are actually supposed to get more filled with the light. Now the church in 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 America has been on the decline uh, for a, since about the Civil War, since about these uh, new ideas. So we think that's the way it's supposed to be. We even have a thing that is called dispensational premillennialism, where the the Antichrist is going to prevail and sin's going to prevail. Will there be faith on the earth? And there will just be three or four little Christians. Uh, somehow it's always our church. But but uh, <laughs> in every interpretation, then and there will there be faith in the earth and and. Uh, so forth. You know, the gospel is exploding worldwide, and with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there will come a time—I don't know how this is going to come—where the church quits fracturing and fracturing and fracturing and actually builds unity I believe it's going to happen in local areas. I don't think it's going to be through one national hierarchy. I don't know how it's going to happen, though. Uh, but it's and it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. We are so fractured and divided and impotent right now. It's 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 breaks your heart. I'm sure it breaks the heart of God. So, but uh, the idea that it, the church is going to shrink and shrink. They say around thirty thousand people a day come to communist China. I had a uh, Bible st- study with a communist Chinese student, and many of you know him, Jason Shen Yun, who came to our church for a while. He's up, he graduated and is in Akron now, but we had a Bible study for a whole year and a half, nearly two years, and uh, he had not, he had never heard of Christianity when he came to the U.S., uh, and this guy was very diligent, and he I got him studying online what's going on in China and so forth, and he found out that China, the church is exploding. And he basically, a lot of our last talks, he was really wrestling with, do I go with the church that the state allows, which has compromised all kinds of things about Christianity, or do I go with the, the, the church that's really full of, of Scripture and grace and truth that's underground and illegal, He was really struggling with that decision because if you get caught at the churches that are illegal, which are the more serious, devout biblical churches, you uh, lose your job and uh, you never can work again and and you've kind of ruined your family and life economically. uh, Or you can go to the church the state allows. We're getting closer to that in this country, unfortunately. But... uh, uh, I actually know some Christians who don't even believe the church should incorporate and so forth because we shouldn't admit that the state has any jurisdiction over even defining what is the church or taxing it or anything. But anyway, we haven't gone that far, but maybe we should. We'll see. Uh, Let's get into two people groups, the people of light versus the people of darkness. So in order to do this, we have to cover Adam and Eve just a little bit. Okay. Adam and Eve are born in perfect relationship to God. They often, uh, even in covenant theology, they call their covenant, the covenant of works. However, it's not. It's a covenant of grace. They didn't choose to be born. God chose to born them, so so to speak. (laughs) Uh, Bad grammar just for making a point. Uh they didn't they didn't choose to be in perfect relationship with God in a garden that was was obviously made after the pattern of heaven, and that they were supposed to fill the garden with order, zoologically classifying the animals and cultivating the garden and keeping strange serpents out of it and uh this kind of thing. Uh this was all by grace. And yes, they were given one command, but all Grace leads to the fulfillment of the law. Do you know that every one of the Ten Commandments is repeated at least a dozen or more times in the New Testament? So it's not that you're not under law anymore, it's that the law is fulfilled in Christ, and when you're in Christ, he will write his law upon your heart and your mind and empower you to want to do it. God still doesn't like adultery, and so just because you say, well, I'm not under law and I'm under grace, you know, you get all kind of, I had a w- weird lady tell me one time, she came up after church years, 20 some years ago in another church that we started. And she's like, well, the Lord has shown me I'm supposed to marry this man. And I'm like, yes, tell me more. She goes, well, the problem is I'm already married. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I used to have hair back then. So I pulled it all out. That's why I'm bald now. But uh um. You know it's crazy out there. Um, Adam and Eve, the essence of their temptation and sin we kind of need to understand. They fell through pride, which is the same as mistrust or or lack of faith. Again, we keep watering down what faith means, but faith is uh, is enough trust in to love, follow, obey, cling to, rely on, serve, etc. If you really believe God, you'll obey him. You'll bring forth righteousness. And all sin, they they were in grace with God. They were empowered by God. And they were given a commandment. Uh, and there were sanctions for disobeying that commandment. And so a serpent says, indeed hath God said. I, you, we've covered this so much, I didn't put much detail here. It's all in Genesis 3, if you want to study it in more detail again, uh, which you should. Uh, but the first thing is 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 always the same in the first temptation was doubt in the word of god all the higher criticism all the you know paul didn't really write the 13 books attributed to his name and you can't believe that genesis 1 through 11 was it it, it all started with indeed has god said the the first temptation is always to undermine the authority of god's word because jesus taught that the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart and scripture is the abundance that fills God's heart. You cannot know him unless you become a voracious, let me get some eye contact, in fact, unless you become a voracious student of this, you will never know him. Some people in their love for the Lord go to so much church and do so much this and this and that and that, and that but they never read this. Read this every day. Read the Gospels for the hundred and fiftieth time. Somewhere between the hundredth and two hundredth time you read the Gospels, you'll really start to click in understanding them. They're they're worth pouring over and thinking about, and cross referencing, and and reading whole you know the whole Gospel of Mark in one sitting, and things like that, so that you can see the continuity of it and so forth. But at the serpent starts and he goes, indeed hath God said. He doubts God's word. What you need to understand is that when you you are built, you're made in the image of God. And ultimately, your life is built on trusting some opinion. So when you doubt God's word, you substitute your, your man's reason, your thinking, you become who you're trusting in. And that's the essence of the sin nature. The essence of the sin nature is the next temptation God knows that in the day you read it, he, see, the serpent always goes from, from um, doubting God's word to impugning God's character. So God's trying to hold you back from something. You, you'll be surprised at how many, I just had a meeting again this week with a young lady who's very involved in her church, and she goes to church very regularly, and she thinks of herself as a very mature Christian and so forth. And she began to tell me all the th- ideas in God's word that she doesn't like and doesn't agree with such as that, you know, that a Christian should marry a Christian. She's like, well, you know, I'm, I, my boyfriend's an unbeliever, and I'm going to marry him, and in that way, someday he'll come to the Lord. I'm like, holy cow. I wish the uh, pray to receive Jesus and then wait to go to heaven was true because I would have probably just shot her and put her out of her misery in, a, in the most loving way, of course. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, you know, and... You hear all the time, you know, God is wrong about whatever. It's crazy out there. Because this, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you shall be like God, determining for yourself good from evil. That's what the Hebrew means. You'll actually become the judge of good and evil. Instead of letting God's word judge you, you'll judge God's word that's what the higher criticism is all about so mistrust is always trusting ourselves it's amazing how many times i'm having bible studies to try to lead people to christ and they and we spend months sometimes on the concept that uh, that you can't do everything your way if you want to receive christ cuz that's not taught in the church today today it's said believe which we mean uh, trust these 12 statements uh, of content, and then do whatever you want. (laughs) You know, those who are born of the Spirit are, you know, not under the law. Just do whatever the heck you want. That's kind of what's expected and taught in the church today. And so um, grace works through faith, which is trust, and it always yields what Paul calls in both Romans 1 and Romans 15, the obedience of faith. See, if your faith is not enough to cause you to follow, to serve, to to lose your life so that you can find a new one on the other side of the cross, to say not my will, but thy will be done, and very everyday decisions, that you have to go to Gethsemane every day. If if you don't have that kind of trust in him, then what you have is trust in yourself and your desires and your motivations. Well, I want my uh, courting marriage things to work out this way, so this is what I'm going to do, and no one's going to tell me any different. I want my vocation to work out this way, so this is how I'm going to pursue it, and I'm not going to let anyone tell me to go through some, some process like Abraham went where he had to lay Isaac on the a- altar, and God had to kill his idol be, uh, before he could give it back to him. Well, let me tell you, you will never enter into the deeper things of God's will for yourself unless you go through an Abraham-Isaac experience with them. Whatever it is that you want to be and you want, and this is my will, God has to kill that. And you'll only find it in in the resurrection life of Christ on the other side. So uh, I hope you can understand that rebellion is self-trust. That's what rebellion is. Rebellion is self trust in my perspectives. Many I've 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 worked with many a troubled person who stays there for years. I've got this perspective on, you know, I fall into unforgiveness and bitterness easily. I doubt God's word easily. I've got my will of how I want this to develop easily, and I'm not listening to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, or any authority he raises up in my life, in the church, or the family, or whatever. I'm, I'm doing it my way. That's the essence of the sin nature. If you, you know, everyone talks about how demonic rock and roll is. The most demonic song of all time was made famous by a guy named Frank Sinatra, and it was called, I did it my way. <laughs> that's the essence of man's sin nature. That's a that's the anthem to the worship of man. So you always go to these seminars if you got Black Sabbath or whatever, burn. So if you have Frank, that song by Frank Sinatra, burn it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, bring, throw it in the fire. Um, so you need to understand that Eve was deceived, Adam rebelled, but both involve mistrust in God and trust in oneself. See, when when Eve came to, to Adam, he could see her nature was changed. He could see something was wrong. He could see she's out of fellowship with God and therefore out of fellowship with him. But he made an idol out of her and he rebelled against God. He said, I'd rather have her. He didn't have any trust in God being able to redeem her or whatever. Now, this inevitably led to the start of the two people groups in the earth, uh, which is important because, um, again, Adam and Eve sinned. Now, most theologians, and and I am in this camp, believe that, that Adam and Eve were granted repentance in the sense that they were restored to fellowship with God, and that's what the whole thing that he gave them skins because they tried to cover their sin with Plant leaves with, with uh, what do you Ivy or whatever. Fig leaves, I'm sorry, is what I'm going for. They tried to cover their, themselves with figs leaves, which speaks of man's attempt, uh, all, all false religions, all human religions, are man's attempt to deal with his own guilt. Sigmund Freud in his civilizations and its discontents, said the most noticeable characteristic of all men is that all men have a prevailing sense of guilt. And he didn't think that guilt, like a Christian view of guilt is that we really have sinned against God, and therefore we really need to confess our sins, be be reconciled to God, and, and receive a new creation and be changed and so forth. Sigmund Freud's answer was blame it on your parents and society and the church. And that's progressively become the blame-shifting mode of Western culture since then. But Adam and Eve were doing that. They were trying to atone for their own it says the eyes of both of them were open and they were became aware that they were naked. And uh before that they they were able to be naked in perfect relationship with no shame. Uh and then when sin in, uh came into the world nakedness becomes a universal symbol of shame. And they see their shame and they see their guilt and they see they're no longer what they ought to be, that they're no longer comp- that the image of God in them has been marred and they're no longer the, the, the king and queen, they were meant to be uh, l- l- vice regents under God, tending his affairs and so forth, that all this sin nature has been set in. So they try to atone for it themselves. And when God confronts them, they blame shift on each other. The man, you know, the woman made me do it that thou had given me, which is really your fault. And that, all that stuff, that Eve said, the serpent made me do it. But then God, it says, provided skins to cover their shame which you can't have a skin if you don't slay the animal. So he starts, he teaches them the principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, a foreshadowing of Christ. And they know that. And then they, they go on to have two sons and, we'll, and, uh, and eventually a third named Seth. Um, let's just end with explaining one thing. In John three thirty three it says, whoever receives Christ's testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, that's important. We don't get the metaphor there or the importance of it. You know, We don't even know what set a seal means, I think. But in ancient times, everyone really up to modern times, everyone had a seal. And if you, all through the Old Testament, you read when Nebuchadnezzar you know, declares something and seals it, it can't be changed. According to the Bible, when you get born again, water baptized, baptized in the Holy Spirit, God is actually sealing you. In the in the power and covenant of the age to come, in, and He's going to fulfill the covenant to you. You're going to fail in it over and over, but He He's going to provide the solution in His death, burial, and resurrection to you. And uh, in ancient times, once a king had sealed something, you know, like if you see that old movie Moses, let it so let it be written, so let it be done. It can't be changed. And. The bottom line is, uh, I like how it's read in the ESV. I put the ESV version there because it says whoever receives his testimony sets his seal. New American Standard says has set his seal. But what is the the, the discrepancy there is because they're wrestling with more complicated verb tests than we have in English. And it really means this. Before you knew God, you had set your seal to trusting in you and your perspectives, your view of right and wrong, and your ver- view of your values and your priorities and how you're going to attain this and that. Whoever has believed his report resets his seal, which can only be done by the death of the person who set the seal in the first place. So when you enter into Christ, you die to yourself. You, you actually kill the old man who is be, Paul said, it's no. I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. As a Christian, you should be able to stand up if we say, you know, has anyone got a testimony or something? And people should pop up and go, I have been crucified with Christ, and I'm dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who leads in me. So that seal of my opinion and my lordship and my... Know-it-all in this, and every teenager gets a little bit of that. Uh, it's part of your sin nature. It's free. Uh, no, it, it comes no extra charge. Uh, you know, every, you, you have to kill that person who has set his seal that I am true, and that I'm reality, and I'm the judge. And then you come under a new king who sets his seal that you are his, and you've set your seal that God is true. Your faith becomes in Scripture. Your faith becomes in the way God works out his will through the power of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, and the church. God is true. You reset your seal. That's another way of explaining what happens at the new birth, at conversion. So with that, even though Adam and Eve repented, most theologians believe, and I believe, their sin nature, had the cat had been let out of the bag, so to speak. They still, for for. Uh, had a sin nature until the entire eternal decree of God plays itself out. First Corinthians 15, that, you know, eventually death itself will be conquered and all these things, right? Hopefully you're tracking with me. I'm going to probably only get about halfway through this message today. It looks like, but um, in Matthew 23 and 35 and, uh, Jesus talks about how the blood of all righteous men from Abel to Zechariah will be will be put on this generation. But in Luke, he calls it all the prophets. So Jesus calls Abel the first prophet. And the Bible even says how his blood still speaks. It's still prophesying. Okay, so we need to understand this Cain-Abel thing a little bit. And uh, that's probably all the further I'll get today, but... Uh, well, uh, because in Cain and Abel, in Adam and Eve's sin, the sin nature came into the world, which made it uh, made it um, inevitable. Uh, it was the destiny from there on out that some would walk with the power of darkness. Some would walk according to sin and the flesh and the sin nature and the demonic kingdoms and Satan, and, and, and they would together build a world system against God. Others would would receive grace and continue to track toward God. And Cain becomes the father of the wicked people, the people of darkness. Abel becomes the father of the people of righteousness and the first prophet of God. And it, it happens like this, Genesis 4, 3 through 10. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Important wording. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord, uh, I'm sure we've experienced that, in, in, in the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, the scripture says. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel's brother and killed him. Then though it was overcrowding, by the way. That's the modern sociologist's interpretation. Then uh, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's ke- keeper? Now, that was the third great cop-out in the history of mankind. The first one was Adam er, saying, uh, the woman whom thou hast given me. The second one was Eve saying, the serpent. And now, the third great cop- cop-out is, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> only killed him and hid his body. Um then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel? And he said, I don't know, my, my brother's keeper. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Very important. Now, in the two offerings, um, jump down to uh, under point three, where Hebrews 11, four, because I'll just go ahead and prove this point before I make it. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his attitude? No. It was his gifts, the gifts themselves were of faith or not faith. And through uh, God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he's still prophesying. He's still speaking. Okay, now, Cain brought the efforts of man. That's what sim- the Bible teaches through symbolism. The symbolism is uh, the same as Adam and Eve had done, he bought, brought the plants that were produced from the ground. Abel had listened to his parents, and it had been introduced to God, and they had discipled him in the things of God as he grew up, and they had taught him, we tried to, to atone for our own sin, but God uh, atoned for it by, by shedding blood, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So, Abel understood that it's in the natures of the gifts. The ultimate gift before the Father and the ultimate gift to us is the blood of the Lamb. And it wouldn't have done for the blood of Greg or the blood of Aunt Jo or anything else. The gift wouldn't be right. The gift had to be God Himself. And, and the animal skins, because God is the creator of life, and the uh, Abel offering the sacrifices of animals is a foreshadowing of Christ. It's a type of Christ. It's saying without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. So therefore, his offering was by faith, because faith is trust in God's revealed will, which he learned about. People always go, well, I'm only going to obey the Bible and the Holy Spirit. He learned about from his parents. I'm always. I think about this. God told Noah to build an ark for 40 years. There's no evidence that He ever told Mrs. Noah or or Noah's three sons or their wives, but they knew that God speaks through delegated authority enough to to do it. Noah said, "We're going to build an ark," and you know, I hope you've heard the Bill Cosby thing on that. You know, what's an ark, and you know, and so forth. So. They do it for, can you imagine obeying that for 40, building a huge ship the size of a soccer field uh, when there, that's never rained before and you're not anywhere near water and everyone's mocking you and you're still going to do what your dad's telling you to do? Today, we've all been raised in how to rebel, and so we would have, Dad, you're crazy. (laughs) You build an ark if you want to. I don't feel cold to that. (laughs) I'm not sensing it. Uh, I'm not feeling it. And I certainly don't see in Scripture where it says build an ark because it had not been written down yet. I'm not holding up things that are unscriptural. All things that God speaks will be scriptural but they sometimes don't come to you the way you want them to. Jesus said, you won't see me again till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will have blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord at various times in your life. And your whole destiny will be determined by how you can hear that or not hear it. So that's really Cain brings self-righteousness and Abel brings the blood of atonement. According to faith, he didn't just make it up. He learned it from Adam and Eve. Then God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. Now, this is very similar to an ex- Exodus 19, when God tells the children of Israel, if they do, if they are careful to do hear and do all he says, they'll be his special people. And what they should have said is not, we will do it. What they should have said is, we could never do it. Come and empower us to do it. Like the man who said, uh, I do believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. Sin is crouching at the door. You must master it. Things might have turned out differently if there was enough grace on Cain to say, oh, my God, I could never master it. It's already risen up in me to the level where I've murdered somebody. Save me from it. You can't master it. You must master it, and you can't master it. So you must go throw yourself on the grace of God and and the power of his resurrection, and you must allow him to master it through you. But you must, because if you don't let him master it through you, it will destroy you. Whatever your sins are, whether they're laziness or apathy, anger management, addictions, uh, pride, selfish ambition, uh, inability to hear correction, or whatever your sins are, they will destroy you. They are rising up in you, and unless you master them, they, you will die. Your life will be a shambles. You'll never have a good marriage. You'll never have have kids that you can really love and serve if they if you don't master these things that are mastering you. However, you cannot. You must throw yourself on the at the foot stool of Christ at the at the at the base of the cross and and say save me but you need to understand it's not a matter of punching a ticket to heaven it's a matter of receiving Christ the power of his Holy Spirit discipleship being discipled by both the word the spirit and the the leadership God puts in your life in such a way that you're empowered to drive the sin out that's why in the in the You know, Abel was the younger brother, and he starts a prophetic tradition that the younger will rise up and kill the older. Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. David was the youngest. You know, there Samuel saying to Jesse, "Don't you have any more sons?" And he was so proud of the older sons, but then there was this guy who hung out, who was faithful in the sheep. You know, but was pasturing the sheep, and he's always worshiping God. the heck is that? You know, and so forth. And he go, well, I do have another son, but you know, you wouldn't want to talk to him. And Samuel said, bingo, that's the Lord's man that he's anointed. You see, the, in your own life, you receive when you receive the new nature of Christ, it's like a younger brother. All the younger brothers in the Bible are a metaphorical thing pointing to the fact that the new man is going to raise up and slay the old man. And if, God, if you don't receive the grace of God daily, continually in sanctification to see the new man slaying the old man, it, then sin will master you. A salvation that's not real, that doesn't really save you from bondage and addictions and the power of the enemy is a salvation that hasn't really happened yet. It's still in your theoretical. That's why part of salvation was and, and is casting out demons now i know western churches don't do that but central american churches do south american churches do african churches do southeast asia and we have a virtual revival of the occult in our country and paganism in the last 40 years and we still think you know these are just theoretical things we talk about well, I have news for you. Jesus cast out demons as over twenty five percent of his ministry in a culture that was a lot more godly than our culture. So either you have to decide Jesus was accommodating himself to the psychological backwardness of his day, or we've missed we're missing something of very of very important about the gospel. Either Jesus was wrong and just to, and we've evolved more. Or we're wrong. So, uh, thirdly, Abel becomes the second great human type or foreshadowing of Christ, the younger brother. We just talked about that. Uh, Hebrews 11, 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice through Cain, which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith that though he is dead, he still speaks. So how does the blood of Je- How does the blood? of Abel speak better than the blood. Uh, I mean, how does the blood of Jesus speak better than the blood of Abel? I think I said just said that backwards. Three ways. This is very important. See, Abel, Abel's blood was a foreshadowing. He's the first prophet, and he's the first shedder of his blood for the salvation of man. All is a foreshadowing. If you uh, ever listen to John's series called Christ in the Old Testament, which you should go back and listen on to on the podcast if you have not, so that you understand the Old Testament is filled with hundreds of people who are foreshadowings of Christ in different ways. But all of them, because God has ordained that only God himself could be Christ, could become a man and be perfect and sinless and all the things that is involved in, in who Christ is. All the foreshadowings fall short in various ways. Well, here's three ways that Abel's blood falls short. And Christ's blood does not fall short on your behalf. First of all, Abel shed his blood involuntarily. Cain snuck up on him and killed him. So... um. Jesus shed his blood voluntarily. Look at John ten fifteen through eighteen. We're out of time, so I can't turn there. But he said, "I laid down my life on behalf of the sheep. No one takes it from me." When they came to get him in the garden, he could have just said, "Nah, change my mind. You're all dead," <laughs> and they would have died. He could have. He said, "Don't you think I could have appealed to my father for legions of angels and so forth?" He chose. Not my will, Lord, but Thy will be done. Abel didn't choose to be killed by Cain. Jesus chose to be killed at the hands of every type of man. The religious men cried out, "Crucify him!" The political men cried out, "Crucify him!" Uh, the the multitudes that once were fed by him, and in the same multitudes that 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 ate the the, the bread and the fish at, at, at the, at the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, the same multitudes who cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he come in the name of the Lord. They were the same multitudes that cried out and said, crucify him, crucify him. I try to think of that sometimes when I get discouraged about uh, how, how much we're struggling in our day with, with Christians that are double-minded, that are one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord and, and never break, seem to break three and never seem to get all that radical for the Lord. It's, it, you know, that's, you know, those same people that cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Four days later, the, the Pharisees and scribes got him to cry out, crucify him. Jesus shed his blood voluntarily. Abel's blood cries for vengeance. Okay, the, the blood of your brother is crying from the ground. If you go back and study the Noah, uh, go forward and study Noah, you'll see that, that when blood is shed, it cries uh, for, for, uh, for vengeance. It cries for God to act. It cries for justice. Right now, we're living in a situation in our country where we murder every third baby that's conceived. One out of every three babies. And the blood of those babies is crying before God. And we better become a really dedicated, on-fire, radical group of Christians just just to cry out to God for mercy on our land, because blood cries out for vengeance. The only thing we can do is pray that, that Christ will move in our land because he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in his name, starting in Jerusalem, has been proclaimed the forgiveness of sins ongoingly. Now, we'll uh, make the last two points, and I'm going to stop there, and we'll start with those two points next week. Cain becomes, therefore, the federal head of the people of this world. He speaks of man's attempt to save himself. Almost all philosophies and religions, we'll talk about this more in detail next week, boil down to man saving himself. Self-help books are the number one kind of selling book in our culture how to save yourself. And interestingly, they're the number one selling type of book in Christian bookstores. How to save yourself. Uh, he, he becomes threefold enmity and so forth. We'll look at all that next week. Uh, they, Adam and Eve have another son. His name is Seth. And that son, Seth, becomes the federal head of the people of Yahweh. And uh, that's important because if you tra- trace all the godliness uh, that comes into the world, they're all the descendants of Seth, who eventually include Noah. Uh, before Noah, of course, there's Enoch, who walked with God. And after Noah, goes all the way through to Abraham. And we'll look at that next week. Uh, and we'll see the process beginning again uh, after Noah. So... Uh, at, at the so, Just to sum up, at the, uh, the killing of, of Abel by Cain, and then th- through the birth of Seth, two people groups begin to emerge in the earth. And the people group that is lost, deceived, um, the people of darkness, they hate and kill the people of God. All, and that's a major theme all through the Bible. But God has ordained that even in our death, we would serve them. In the, in, when, when Satan, through the Roman Empire, killed the Christians, the blood of those martyrs became the seed of the church that caused the church to grow. And so it will be until Christ's second coming.